Well, again, uh, thank you all uh, for being here. We're going to continue our look at the solas. Uh, just so that you know, this is not a, uh, an original idea of mine, although I would love to take credit for it. Uh, many of our churches across our presbytery and indeed our denomination and even beyond that are, are actually doing this with uh, the month of October this year. And so we want to encourage you, if you have a chance to uh, look online, you can look even at something as simple as uh, Wikipedia. And you can find a lot of information about the um, Reformation, what it was all about. And I, I have purposefully decided not to spend time talking about the history of the Reformation. I think you can do that on your own. If you have your Bibles, open them to uh, Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to look at uh, one today that is very familiar to you, the sola uh, gratia. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to look at sola gratia. We looked a few weeks ago at sola scriptura. We've looked at sola fide. Today we're going to look at sola gratia. Next week, solas Christus. And the week after that, soli deo gloria. There were five of these pillars that the reformers decided to erect, if you will, to show what the fundamentals or the foundational principles of the Reformation are. And I think, uh, uh, imagine yourself trying to think of uh, uh, your five top favorite songs or your top fi favorite foods or your top favorite five desserts or the top favorite five locations that you like to go to relax. You could, any list, everyone that's ever made those kinds of lists knows how hard it is. I mean, you go through the list and you get, you know, the first two or three probably pretty easy, but you get down to the rest, you think, gosh, what, what can I include? There's so many. It was remarkable that the reformers really were able to pare down all of the important things to these five and what they are and what they, they really mean to us. So we're going to look at sola gratia. We're going to read a passage that almost all of you are familiar with. And so now hear the word of God. Ephesians chapter 2. We'll read the first ten verses. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in sins and trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's Word. 
Okay, so why? Why sola scriptura? Going back just to review, why were the reformers in their top five so adamant that it had to be sola scriptura? Why? And I said a little bit about that in the prayer when I prayed with Scott there about the Gideons. Think about this for just a second. If there were no Bible, if there were no Scriptures, if there were no what we call in theology special revelation from God, all we would know is that we're here on this earth and that maybe there's something up there. We wouldn't know what he, she, it, or them was. We would have no clue, and we would just be left to ourselves to figure out how, if we even believe in some transcendent being or beings, whatever they may be, we would have to be left totally to ourselves. And so systematic theologians over the years have have described, and this is true across all the traditions, Catholic, uh, Eastern Orthodox and no uh, Protestantism doesn't matter where you go. We all believe that there are two forms of revelation. One is what we call special revelation. That's the Bible and all that is contained in it. The other kind of revelation, some theologians have said, is everything else. In other words, nature and everything that you can see. Mathematics and physics and science and art and music. And we could go on and on and on. Everything else is general revelation. Problem is that with general revelation, if it was no scripture, no Bible, there's just enough information according to Romans chapter 1. There's enough information in the creation itself to condemn us. And that's all it can do. You can't get saved by looking at a waterfall or a sunset or going out dreamily and listening to, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the Brahms Violin Concerto and decide that you want to be saved. Y- you can't. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. It will bring you close to whatever is out there, but it will not tell you what you need to know. Scripture is the only thing that tells us who we really are and what's really wrong with us and what we need in order to be saved or reconciled or made right with God. What about sola fide? Why did they insist on sola fide? Because anything else, and I told you last last week, that if you have faith in your faith, then it's a work. And it is not sola fide, it's sola you. How well you believe, how strongly you believe, how much faith you have, how strong your faith may be. And I read to you the quote by Horatius Boner who said that it's not the amount of faith, it's not the quality or quantity of your faith, it's your faith is completely dependent upon the object in which you place it. So you can believe, as Isaiah said, you can believe that a block of wood could save you. 
And you can carve part of it and make an idol and you can put the other part in your fire and cook your dinner and warm yourself. But no matter how strongly you believe, no matter how sincere you are, that block of wood cannot save you. And Isaiah mocked the people that made the idols of wood and gold and silver and that kind of thing because no matter how much you believe, as Scott said, they have eyes they don't hear, they have have eyes they can't see, they have ears they can't hear, they have mouths they can't talk, they have arms but they cannot save. So what are you going to do? No matter how hard you believe, that cosmic God, the one of your own creation, cannot save you. It has to be simply trusting, simply believing. And the object of your faith has got to be right. It has to be the right God, the one who does save. And last week we looked at the passage in uh, Romans chapter 3. We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption in Christ Jesus whom God put forth as a propitiation or a satisfaction for all that was required to make things right with Him to be received by faith. So faith, while it is active, is also passive. It is both active and passive. You do have to believe. God is not going to believe for you and He's not going to force you to believe. You with me? He is going to enable you to believe for yourself. That's what we call the new birth. Now, this goes counter to a lot of what you hear in American Christianity, but I can't get into all that. If you have questions after the service, I'll be happy to answer those. But we strongly believe that faith is, is something that, you, that you, rece- you receive what God has already done. And that gift that you receive by faith, no matter the quantity, no matter the quality, that gift you receive is the gift of God's grace. Faith is a gift. Grace is a gift. Everything God gives us is a gift of grace. And grace, all of you know the definition, the classic definition of grace is what? Unmerited favor, right? But it's way more than that. In fact, I wish somebody had never made that up. But that is basically the definition. But it's much more than that, and we're going to talk about that this morning. And hopefully... The reason we we say grace is amazing is because of what we're going to talk about. It truly is amazing. One of the ways we can divine what grace is is by saying what it's not. And I want you to listen carefully because I I think people misunderstand when we talk so much about grace in our church that somehow we're saying that grace is leniency. Grace is not leniency. Write it down. There's a place in your bulletin for notes. Let's see those pencils fly. Let's see some sparks flying. Grace is not leniency. Grace is not just kind of giving way and making way. Grace is much more than that. It's not leniency. Grace is not assistance. It's not just giving a leg up. It's not just uh, uh, cl- you know, climbing down uh, uh, from, from rocks at Waco Tanks. You know, you have to reach up and take somebody's hand and help them get down. That's not grace. That's just assistance. Grace is not leniency. Grace is not saying to your kids, Oh, you did a terrible thing here. I'm just going to let you go. That's not grace. That's leniency. 
Grace is not letting somebody off the hook. Because anytime grace is given, anytime grace is given, if it's truly grace, how do you know it's really grace and not leniency? How do you know that it's not just assistance? How do you know it's not just letting somebody off the hook? How do you know? And the way you know is because somebody, somewhere, down the line of all that administration, all that giving of grace, somebody pays. Somebody is on the other side of that grace. And if you think grace is just saying, ollie, ollie, oxen free, and there's no foul, that is not grace. That's something else. Grace, somebody has to pay. And grace is only one way. Now we can talk about grace the other way. We can use it in those, those terms of, well, uh, you know, uh, I'll give you, you know, we'll be gracious to this person and we'll let them have, you know, something and, you know, that kind of grace, that kind of leniency. But that's not how the Bible talks about grace. When grace is given, something happens on the other side. It's an equation. And that's why I've insisted. Sometimes people even have gotten mad at me, but I have insisted that grace has nothing that you can compare. Don't any of you ever put grace over against law. The law of God is entirely gracious. Yes? It is totally gracious to you. Because it preserves your life. Grace is not something you set over against law and say, oh, you know, Chuck is antinomian because he says we don't have you know, to do this and that and the other thing. I never say that. And you shouldn't hear that when we talk about grace. The law is gracious. The very fact. In fact, the, the lady on the radio, uh, what's her name? Uh, Schlesinger? Laura, Dr. Laura. I love Dr. Laura. She's a better theologian than a lot of Christians. A Jewish lady. She wrote a book on the Ten Commandments, and I, I would urge you to read it. It's an amazing book. And Dr. Schlesinger, a Jewish woman, a Jewish psychologist, said that the nation of Israel was not free. Listen carefully at the inside of this great woman. The nation of Israel was not free when God let them go out of Israel. They became free at Exodus chapter 20 and following when they accepted and received the Ten Commandments. Then they were free. Then they were free to be who God wanted them to be. So very quickly this morning, we're going to talk about what grace is not and what grace is. And we're going to look at it these way. This is how I'm going to uh, do it. Uh, first is uh, dead man walking. That's what verses 1 through 3 is, a dead man walking. Secondly, we're going to look at this break in the middle, but God, but God. So dead man walking, but God. And finally, uh, we'll take a look at the new creation that... Uh, the Apostle Paul puts forward, which is really magnificent. I don't know if any of you have seen this movie, The Green Mile, uh, with Tom Hanks. It was made uh, a number of years ago. It's really a very good, very good uh, movie. Uh, if you don't like movies, that's okay, but this is a good one. Uh, 
Tom Hanks does a great job, and, and uh, the, uh, the movie's about a, a black man who gets uh, convicted of a murder, a horrendous murder that he didn't com- c- commit, but he is uh, convicted, and he's moved from prison after the trial to death row, and maybe some of you remember the scene. He's a giant, a big, huge man who's extremely gentle, but who could break you like a twig because of his, just his physicality and strength. They're walking him into the prison, into what they call the Green Mile, Death Row. And this uh, snooty uh, uh, rookie prison guard is chanting uh, a a chant that they used in these situations, but at this prison they didn't because the guards had compassion on their prisoners. And so this man comes walking in, this rookie, and he's hollering out, chanting, dead man walking, dead man walking. Do you all remember the scene? Dead man walking. And the other guys don't like it, but he's chanting. This was a tradition. They would bring the man who was going to be executed in walking. Dead man walking. He's alive, but he's a dead man. For all intents and purposes, he's dead. He is dead, he's alive, but he's dead. And commentator Max Turner said this, Those bound in sin, listen, Those bound in sin are doomed to death and so already belong to its realm. Wow. The very thing they think of as life is but a foretaste of death because it is without God. Just think about that for a moment. Look at all of us. There's not a person in here who is not going to die. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Oh, so this is such good news. Look, I don't like to be the bearer of bad tidings, but I mean, you all know, if you woke up this morning, you were lucky. Because that's how the world looks. We're we're fortunate to get up. But we get up and we think, hey, I'm up. We, We think we have all this power of life. And our life can be snatched away in a second. In a moment, we're as fragile as a blade of grass that springs up today and is gone by the afternoon, the psalm says. We're like a puff of smoke. You know, it, it comes up, it look, and pff, before you can even say it's gone, it's, it's disappeared. And all you can maybe get for a few minutes is the fragrance of the smoke, and then it's completely gone. So brief, so fragile. And the Apostle Paul said, we're walking dead. We're the dead men walking. In these first three verses, let's be honest, he says. Let's be honest. Look at yourself and say, look how fragile my life is. My condition. He says, he says look, wake up. This is special revelation. We wouldn't have known this otherwise. We would have known that we had something wrong with us, but we wouldn't know what it was. Paul says you're dead in your trespasses and sins. You're not just sick. You're not just wounded. You can't help yourself. It's not a leg up. It's not assistance. Why do we insist? Why do we insist on election? I know that just spends chills up your back. Oh, don't say that. Why would we insist on that? How are you going to save yourself? How? Just tell me. Somebody. If anyone can tell me, I'll stop preaching. That's an incentive right there. How are you going to do it? How are you going to save yourself? Tell me. Well, I know how. 
I'll just accept Jesus. Throw me a life preserver. And God does everything. All I have to do is reach out and get the life preserver. Yes? Yes? Well, yeah, you can. You can reach and get the life preserver. The problem is then you save yourself. You save yourself. That's all it is. Salvation by self. That's not grace. That's assistance. That's just help. That's just a leg up. You with me? Our condition is dead. Our standing. Listen to what he says. This is, this is deep theology in these few verses that all of you know, most of you. Our standing, our status, our identity. Children of wrath. Children of wrath. In other words, we're going to, we're going to suffer judgment. Children of wrath. And look at our destiny. Following the course of the world under the dominion of the prince of the air, the power of the air, the devil, carrying out, we're enslaved to our passions and our desires. We are literally in shackles. And the Apostle Paul said this, when you take this whole condition, even though you're alive, even though you're able to do things, even though you're, you, you know, you're capable of some things, really, really, really underneath, down at the bottom, you're dead. You're dead. Now that is bad news. But the bad news, folks, defines the good news. This condition, by the way, is what the, the uh, St. Augustine, what he called original sin. However you want to think of original sin, there's a lot of theories about what it is and all that. Whatever it is. Can't get into all that on a Sunday morning. But whatever it is, it's the same as being dead. You with me? But then in verse 4, so you've seen the condition. The Apostle Paul is very blunt. He wants people to wait. He wants them to see, my gosh, look, what, look at what I was. And here he's saying you were these things, but look at what human beings are faced with, their destiny, their status, their condition. Look. But God. And you know, theologians and good exegetes will tell you, you need to look for these little markers in Scripture. When the apostles and the other writers, the other Bible writers say things like, but then this, and, or therefore this, or when this happened. These are markers. These are times to really focus and look at what they're saying. And he does this here in verse 4. But God. What he's saying is, let's... Let's actually be amazed. Let's not say, oh, ho-hum, the grace of God, amazing grace, how sweet the sound is, if you rest like me, blah, 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 blah. And we just sing and we kind of goes right over our head. He's saying, no, let's be amazed. But God, the contrast that is there, what He is actually saying should actually want, I mean, it just should make your heart explode with joy and gladness, and a feeling of, wow, I was dead, but now I'm alive, I was blind, but now I see. I mean, the reality of it should be shocking to us every day of our life, and energizing, and rejuvenating, building us up. But we're so used to hearing, it's like, it's like almost like we are ho-hum. 
And I don't want you to be ho-hum. Let's be amazed. Again, uh, Max Turner, this wonderful commentator. What God in His love and mercy has actually done for us comes as a stark and, listen to this, breathtaking. Does it take your breath away? Breathtaking contrast to the doom that we see in verses 1 through 3. See, when, when, every year when we have the Gideons come and when Scott was talking, my mind, my memories start to roll. They start to go. Do you have that tape in your head that rolls the past? Didn't you, just me? Me and Ugo? Okay. So we'll talk after church. We'll compare we share, yeah. I mean, my memories start to, I start thinking who I was. I start remembering what I was. I start remembering my blindness and my poverty. And, and I start remembering uh, that, that, that night in a hotel room where I wanted to kill myself or that, that day in my car where, where I, uh, the despair of life was so great that I didn't want to live anymore. I was a teenager for crying out loud. Why, did, why didn't I want to live? What was wrong with me? What, was, what had captured me, the futility of life, knowing that there was nothing for me. What? What is that? But God. And there was a Gideon Bible. And without them, I still have them, by the way. I have a collection. (laughs) Thank God. It's breathtaking. Even now, after all these years of being a Christian, and I sit here and I listen to Scott talk about this, and I go, wow, wow, I was lost. I was. And I think, wow, thank God. And all of the reality, the beauty of Jesus reaching down into that blindness, into that crippleness, like the man at the pool of the Bethesda that can't get in the water. And Jesus said, never mind the water. Come to me. Stand up. Never mind the water. Never mind the angels. Never mind. Take up your bed and walk. Do you see it? How crazy and wonderful it is all at the same time. Breathtaking. On our worst day, look at verse 4. On our worst day, the worst day in your life, pick it out whatever it was, the worst day. But God, when He was rich in mercy and great love, He intervened. Divine intervention. He stepped in. He pushed through. He broke through the heavens. He came down from heaven to earth. He was born in a manger. He lived a life of poverty and shame, living in a village where everybody knew Joseph was not his father. He lived a life of shame. He lived a life of rejection. Even his family rejected his friends rejected him. The religious leaders, he performed miracles and they said, let's kill him. He raised the dead and they said, what can we do to destroy him? Imagine that. We think if we saw a miracle, we'd say, hey, let's believe. That's not true. God intervenes so that we can believe. It's amazing grace. It's not just help, I help him believe, or, you know, I'll put all the stuff out there in front so that he can believe, or maybe will believe, so that you can save yourself. In John Calvin's words, what? What? Good luck with that. That's right. It's in the Institutes. Good luck with that. 
No, it's really not in the instant. On your worst day, while we were sinners, God commended His love to us. While we were sinners on your worst day, He commended His love to us. He does not hold His nose. I don't know how many times I'm going to have to say that. He doesn't hold His nose at your sin. In fact, today, if you belong to Him and you sin, let's say you just go off the rails and you really sin. Some of you think that God just starts backing up and going, oh, whoa, like this. And I would argue, I will argue till my dying day, that that's when he draws really, really close, gets right up next to you, throws his arms around you, and draws you in, and just crushes you with his love. And you know why I insist on that? And I hope you do too. Because how do you account for you ever coming back to him after that? How dare you, any of you, say, well, I'm a good person. And guilt, condemnation made me do it. I felt really guilty. How dare you? Please don't get mad at me. I'm just using Paul's words. I come back to him. Every time I come back to him is only because I'm in his arms. Do you realize that? That's the only reason I come back. I don't know about you. I don't come back because he scolded me. I don't come back because I see him standing there with his arms crossed and he's holding his nose and think, how could you do that? And neither do you. And so we must insist that it's by grace plus nothing. We've got to. If you give that up, you give it all up. And be honest. Because all we're saying when we give that up, folks, is that we believe that our works get us back. That our works get us in and our works get us back. Condemnation never brought anybody to Jesus. Guilt never brought anybody to Jesus. The love of God is what constrains us. It's what captures us. It captured you when you got saved and it captures you every time after that. If the door's not... So if you say to yourself, oh, well, then I can sin. I can sin all I want then. Chuck's giving me license to sin. Right? No. What I'm saying is, you don't understand grace. You still don't get grace. It's not amazing to you. It doesn't even impress you. You're still so convinced of your own goodness that you'll still say, oh, it's all by grace, it's all by grace, plus all this other stuff I'm going to do. And I'm saying it's not. It's not grace yet. It's not even close to grace. It's something else entirely. And go have it. Look, i got a lot of mileage. I'm going to be 63 years old this next year. Are you anyone amazed? I mean, look at how young I look. I mean, i got a lot of mileage on my life, folks. Some of you do too. And some of you younger ones, you're working on it. I don't know how in the world it's anything but grace plus nothing. I don't know. I don't know what it is. What in the world am I going to bring to the table and say, here, grace, great Lord, it's 99.99999%. 
I'm going to add just this little bit. But God, rich in mercy, He, you know, we're talking about repealing and replacing Obama and all this other stuff, repeal and replace. This is repeal and replace. Listen, though you were dead, made alive with Christ, saved by grace. Your status, your standing, raised and seated with Him in the heavenly places. Beyond the reach, think of this folks, beyond the reach of anything, even death. The Apostle Paul said, if I live or if I die, it's okay. If I live, great, I'll be here to help all of you and be here to to see that you make your way. If I die, it's even better. What would happen to us, folks, if we really believed that and said, you know, I have nothing to be afraid of. Why did Jesus say in the Bible over 350 times, do not fear? It doesn't say do not doubt. Of course we're going to doubt, but don't be afraid. I'm with you. In life, in death, in poverty, in sickness, in health, marriage vows, real ones, that will never be broken. Imagine it. Raised with Him, seated with Him in the heavenlies, in His lap, if you will. Our destiny, before our destiny was wrath, children of wrath, under the power of Satan, now, in the ages to come, I will show you my immeasurable grace. Immeasurable. There's no way to measure. It's infinite. Infinite grace and kindness in Christ. This is what we call in, in theology and the great exchange over which all of Scripture is written. The great exchange where God, the only God in all of created history of mankind, the only God who comes to man and says, me for you. You see, in grace, it's never leniency. Somebody pays. When God told Adam and Eve, the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. They did not die. Have you read your Bible? I know we want to spiritualize it. Say, oh, well, they died spiritually. That's not what the Bible says. Have any of you read the book of Genesis? Lift your hands. Let's see. Okay, does it say they died spiritually? No! You get that much later. So what happened to them? They lived! They should have died, but they lived! Who paid? Who paid the debt? Who paid? Two innocent animals paid. God's animals. His animals. Ones He made. Ones He created. I'm sure you've heard about the scientists that all got together after they figured, discovered that they could create life. Have you heard about that? Just recently. None of you? You should read some scientific journals. All the scientists got together. They said, we have created life. So they made an appointment with God and they told God, we don't need you anymore. We know, we, we know how to create life. And God said, great. Let's see you do it. And so the scientists went out and they got a little shovel 
and they scooped up some dirt. And God said, wait, 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 get your own dirt. I mean, how crazy. I mean, can you, you know, I don't know. I, I, that's the way I think. I'm not pointing fingers. I think that way sometimes. I'm that person. The immeasurable grace, the great exchange. By grace you have been saved through faith. That's not your own doing, the Apostle Paul said. It's a gift of God. What is? The faith, the grace, everything is the gift of God. Not of works. You can't do this. You can't add something to God's grace. And if you start doing that and you start saying, well, well, you need to do this and you need to do that and start adding, all you're doing is saying to, you're saying to us and everybody, I don't really understand grace. I'm going to make up my own religion. And so we fight back. The elders of this church, we push back. You say, well, then you're going to give people license. Well, if they want to go sin, they can. And that means they don't understand the grace of God. You see, the love of God, the grace of God compels us. It makes us different. The great exchange. Let me, let me give you this and then we'll finish. Horatius Bonar, my favorite author, one of them. To be entitled to use another's name when my own is worthless. To be allowed to wear another's garments when mine are torn and filthy, to appear before God in another's person, the beloved Son, this is the summit of all blessing. The sin-bearer and I have exchanged names and robes and places. I am now represented by Him. He now appears in the presence of God for me. All that makes Him precious and dear to the Father has been transferred to me. His excellency and glory are seen as if they were mine. And I receive the love, the fellowship, the glory as if I had earned them all. So entirely one with the sin-bearer am I that God treats me, listen, not merely as if I had not done the evil that I have done, but as if I had done all the good that He has done. That which the substitute has done. In one sense, I am still a poor sinner under wrath. But in another sense, altogether righteous and shall be so forever. Because of the perfect one who gave himself entirely for me. A new creation, verse 10. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Works that He prepared before the foundation of the world. Do you see, folks, this is the only thing, the only thing I know of that is going to give you permanent meaning, permanent, lasting meaning. Because everything is going to be taken away someday, yes? Everything. Even our very life someday will go. Bishop N.T. Wright said, Once we understand 
the original good news, news about something that has happened in the events concerning Jesus, we also understand that the good news about the future cannot be, cannot be about leaving the earth and going to heaven. That is not the goal for which we were made. It must have been something to do with heaven and earth coming together. The creation itself restored and renewed. That's why, folks, in Christ the King, we tell you, invest in this world. Invest in people. Invest in beauty, in art, in music, in science, in your jobs, in your employment. If, you're li- if you have a job that you hate, invest in this way into the job so that it's not meaningless. If your marriage is in trouble, going off the rails, invest in the gospel. Invest in people. Invest in the marriage, even at your own expense. Even if it costs you. Invest in your church. Invest in others around you. Invest in the political system. Whatever it is. He means to recreate this world, to, to, to restore it to its original beauty and beyond. He intends to come down to, have, to earth in the New Jerusalem, the bride of Christ. See, how do we know that? Why is it by grace? Why is it by grace? Sola gratia. Why? Why grace alone? Listen. Jesus had a place in the heavenlies. He gave it up so that you could go to the heavenlies and be seated. He was seated next to the Father, the eternal Son of God. He gave up that place and became a servant, even a slave, made himself subject to death, even death on a cross. Philippians chapter 2. He who refused to follow Satan came under Satan's power, death. He became sin for us. He took our penalty, our sinful identity. We're crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, we live not me, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, was gracious to me, and gave himself for me. Don't you dare, don't, none of us dare add one thing to that. Yes? Not a thing. Will you trust him? By grace, he saved us, plus nothing. Let's pray. Father, it's amazing to us I don't know how often we can be reminded of this, but please, I beg you, Father, burn the reality of your amazing grace so that we don't say it's grace but, grace but nothing. It is grace alone that we stand. Not only now, but forevermore in your presence. You paid for us. We have been bought with a price. And therefore, we will glorify you in our body. Help us, save us, and have mercy on us 
according to your grace. In Christ, amen.